uh, joining us today. Today is a Sabbath that uh, is met by some with joy and some with dread. The beginning of a new series. Up here, it's all joy. Out there, I don't know. A few, not so much, I guess. But uh, um, I, uh, I had one announcement to make, too, to go along with the new series, because I think that, uh, I don't know, it just seems right. And what's right is that they're here. And so since they're here, next week, just wanted to let you know that we'll uh, begin to resume our children's story. Um, we stopped doing it uh, during, uh, just before the pandemic, uh, to keep them safe. And then when we got back together, we didn't have any for a long time. And now we do. So I think that since we do, we should uh, at least tell them a story of Sabbath, which is what I'm going to do, hopefully, to go along with this, uh, with this new series. So y'all know that you have a part in children's story. You gotta bring your offer, okay? And uh, they will make sure to be able to pick it up. But uh, let's uh, let's start doing that next week. So, in prepping for this new series and studying it, you know, I found myself thinking again about crowds. And I used to I had this old illustration when I uh, preached this one series before that I want to talk about a crowd. And uh, I had a couple people in mind when I used this illustration. This one's for Gilbert. Gilbert, if you're if you're flying your colors, Matt, what's what's one crowd you do not want to find yourself in? You don't want to find yourself in this one, do you? Right? And a crowd that 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 I may find you wander you wandering in if you're wearing this. If you're wearing this and you wander into my crowd, you better hope first of all that I'm in the crowd and that you're not in the Bronx. And then maybe I can uh, shield you a little bit. And I made one for Mel, too. Mel, if you're wearing this, man, what's one crowd you do not want to be in? You don't want to be in this one, do you? Right? So I thought about crowds, and the reason that I did was I don't hold out too much hope for crowds in their ability to get things done. They're hard to control. They're impossible to reason with. And they're too easily swayed by the wrong things. Crowds can be and usually are bullies. Crowds are impossible to love when they're not on your side. We love crowds when we're on their side. Right? We love crowds when we're part of that crowd. But when they're not on your side, they're impossible to love. We especially don't like if they make us late, if they make us wait to eat, if they make us wait to shop, or especially if they root for the wrong team. Crowds generally are not the best forums for humanity at their best. If they were, then we would attribute good kids. Think about this. If crowds were humanity at their best, then wouldn't we uh, want to attribute good kids falling in with a good crowd, which is the reason they turned out to be good kids? We don't do that, do we? When our kids turn out to be good kids, it's because of us. Turned out to be bad, they fell into a bad crowd. I've shared before that there's a special word in the Bible for compassion. This one specific word that is translated as compassion. And this, this Greek word is used 12 times in the Bible, and it's only attributed to one person, and that is Jesus. One man, one human, gets this word attributed to him. 
compassion. Because it's a special kind of compassion. It literally can be translated as guts. It literally can be translated as kidneys or bowels or lungs. Why? Because the compassion is mysterious to the writers. All they do is observe the actions of the Son of Man. And they just assume that something magic within him is about him. Since he's the only human that can do this, they think that it's his guts, that he's wired differently, that inside his compassion is a mystery. It's never attributed to another human in all 12 times. It's only attributed to Jesus. And Jesus is the only one whose compassion is described by this particular word. And what's amazing is that the very first time that it's used, the first time that, that this compassion is exhibited is in Matthew 9, and it says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. It's interesting that the subject of this inward guts, this moving with compassion, this, this moving that the Son of Man seems to have, it begins with the one thing that you and I can't muster compassion for. And that's a hostile crowd. Jesus sees something else when he sees a crowd. We can't have compassion on a whole crowd, but Jesus' compassion, number one, comes from his divinity. That's why the Bible writers couldn't explain it. That's why they use this Greek word. Something, it's mysterious. You have to remember, they're, they're at least 2,000 years away from ever seeing an MRI, from ever seeing what, uh, how, how something works inside. So anything that happened within the body, it was a mystery to the, to the ancient so they assumed that there was something special about him, within him. And the first time that it's used, he actually can look at a crowd and have compassion. Not something any of us have. When Matthew saw it, he couldn't explain it. It came from within. And since it came from within the Son of Man, he could, he can, and he does it with crowds. And in the crowds, he doesn't see what we see. He doesn't see the hostility. He doesn't feel the hatred or the resentment. He doesn't see the danger. He sees two things. He sees sheep who are harassed and troubled and helpless, drained of strength and cast down. Leads me to why I was thinking of crowds this week as I began preparing this new series. See, because Jesus has this compassion, and since he has this compassion for everybody, for all of his sheep, even if they're in a crowd, he has something special for them. There's something special that the way he handles crowds that I think that we were meant to learn from. In Mark chapter 4, it says this, Again, he began to teach beside the sea. Such a very large crowd gathered around him that he got into a boat on the sea and sat there, while the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. He began to teach them many things in what? In parables. And in his teaching, he said to them. What did he begin to teach the crowd with? Parables. Some would say that it's Jesus' primary way of teaching. 
The way he chose the crowds, many things, he says. It's, it's what he reserves for teaching the crowd. When he comes upon a crowd, he changes whatever teaching mode he was in with, uh, with anybody else, and he begins to teach them in what? In parables. Some are only a line long. Some are an entire story, half a chapter maybe. Some begin with telling you it's a parable, and then a lot of them don't know. I looked up several sources just to get a list. I wanted just a list of the parables. And guess what? Out of the three sources that I looked at, all modern, you know, expository Bible dictionaries, none of them agree how many parables are in the New Testament. One said 38, one said 32, one said 41. But the first time that we have parable preceded the word parable, if you will, the first time the word appears, that the author called it a parable and then tells you the parable is right here in Mark chapter 4. That he speaks many things to them in parables. That's the first time the word parable is used. And in this particular case, it's used in all three what we call the synoptic gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's one of quite a few, actually, parables that are in all three of these gospels. This story you'll find in Matthew 13. You'll also find it in Luke 8. But there's something about Mark's that I want to hang in Mark's right now. But the word parable is, is simply placing a thing by the side of another is literally what it means. A comparison, a comparing, a parallel case in illustration, a similitude or a simile, which is why many of the parables begin, the kingdom of heaven is like. Something is like. You put the, the, the parables side by side. It's a special illustration to try to get people to understand what he's teaching. And according to Mark, it's reserved for who? For the crowd. That crowd that gathered off the shore, on the shore. Jesus is off the shore, on the boat, actually. And the crowd is so big, that's the reason he's in the boat. There wasn't room for him and all the people that wanted to hear him. So he got into a boat, remember? And he rowed out just a little bit. And he begins to teach them in parables. By the way, out of the 38, 32, 39, 41, whatever one you're looking at, out of all of those parables, 19 of them are spoken around or in the region of Galilee. Just, just one thing to, to uh, put in your ear as, as you consider that, that well over three quarters of them were spoken in the Galilee, and Galilee, by far, is the poorest region that Jesus traveled to and spoke to. It's working class. It's fishermen. It's farmers. I heard Don Tate say once that he said that uh, it depends on who's sitting in the crowd. He goes, you know what? He said, Galilee is Nebraska. <laughs> it's simple. It's farmers. It's fishermen. It's working class. And Jesus loved it. He wasn't from there, but he said he was from there. He wasn't born in Capernaum. He didn't live in Capernaum. But he actually calls Capernaum his own hometown. He just loved it. He spent more time there. He taught there. 
And this particular case right here, where he says that he begins to teach them many things in parables, it's actually a series of parables. See, Jesus taught in series too. He's going to do a series of parables right here. It's the sower, the tares, the mustard seed, all three, what? Agricultural parables. All three things about the farm that he's going to be preaching to the farmers. And then the yeast. He goes from the field to the kitchen. So to begin with, he reserves the parables for these crowds. You have to begin to ask yourself, why? Why talk to farmers about being on the farm? Why talk to uh, cooks about being in the kitchen? It's something that they, what? That they can immediately identify with. Identity. And we're told how, he, how committed he is to this, too. How committed is he when he comes upon these crowds to only teach by parables? So what I wanted to say with Mark is Mark is the only one that says this. He says, Jesus told the crowds all these things in parables, and without a parable, he told them what? He told them nothing. Without a parable, he told them nothing. That's why I called the first part of this series, Without a Parable, Nothing. Nothing without a parable. So why is the crowd, this crowd, so deserving this provocative way of teaching? By the way, real, real, real quick, does simple mean uh, boring? Does simple mean ignorant? Does simple mean that they just aren't intelligent enough to get it? Can simple be provocative? Can it be revolutionary? Can it be devastating to cherished views? exactly why he's using parables. Except that they're only reserved for who? They're only reserved for the crowd. That's what he teaches in parables. In fact, he refuses to teach them any other way. Any other way. So what is it that Jesus, the only Son of Man who has compassion on these crowds, why does he insist on these parables? Well, Mark puts it this way. He says, as soon as he's uh, I'm going to go back to the first parable because uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get there. But at the end of the first parable, it says this. When he gets through the series, according to Mark, though, it says, as soon as he was what? What happened to the crowd? They went home after they heard the parables. If you could put all three of those gospels together, after they heard those four parables, they were done. They went home. They were alone. And then Mark says this. He goes, so he's alone except for his followers along with the twelve. And they began asking him about what? About the parables. Guess who's curious about why he's teaching in parables? And that's what's interesting is that Matthew and Luke both record that they immediately wanted to know the meaning of the parable. Mark, though, just wanted to know why. Why do you teach them in parables? It's interesting. Mark says he's alone, and it's just down to this particular group, the twelve, and also someone that he calls what? He calls the followers. I don't think it's a shock to anybody to know that Jesus had other followers besides the disciples, besides the twelve. Right? 
I don't think we're shocked at all. So Mark names this group. So this group is, is this particular circle of intimacy, if you will. His followers along with the twelve. I like that Mark points this out. Okay? I like that he points it out because here he is writing the gospel and he just suddenly wants to let you know that he really wasn't an eyewitness. He may not even be here right now. But he likes to be included in this group of disciples and followers. Right? We're not even sure if he witnessed this. But I like that he brings it up. Does he belong there? He certainly has the knowledge to. He's the first one to write a gospel. Some speculate that if Mark hadn't written his gospel, we wouldn't have up to 85% of either Matthew or Luke. Mark wrote it first. So it's interesting that he, he says that you don't have to have been one of the twelve in order to be in this circle, in order to be in. What's special about this circle? He was saying to them, and when they asked, so why is it you speak in parables, is, is what Mark asked. He was saying to them, to you it's been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but those who are outside get everything in what? In parables. Those only who are what? Outside. Outside what? Outside this particular group. The twelve and the followers. That big, huge crowd that just heard four parables and went home. Why? I speak to them that way because for you, the mysteries of the kingdom are revealed. Why are the mysteries of the kingdom revealed to them? Because the kingdom is sitting right there. Right? The kingdom is there. That, that circle right there, that's the kingdom. Everyone else is outside. There's inside and there's outside. Just real quick, uh, a review on, on Jesus talking about the kingdom. It says, after John had been taken into custody, by the way, before John was taken into custody, his message was, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why? Because he knew that he, he was the one that was to make the way for the king, right? He said, I'm, I'm, I'm not the king, but I'm making a way for the king. I'm like what Isaiah says, I'm one laying out a path. But as soon as John is taken into custody, the message then goes to Jesus. And Jesus, in Mark at least, just shows up on the scene. There's no birth narrative. There's no genealogy. He just shows up on the scene, is baptized by John the Baptist. The Baptist then is arrested, and Jesus goes into the, to, uh, the wilderness to face down the proclaimed king of this world. And when he defeats the proclaimed king of the world, he wanders back into the world's kingdom who now has a defeated king, but doesn't know it. And the king of kings says, repent, the kingdom of heaven is what? It's at hand. It's right here. This is it. And after that, he goes, right after that, and when he proclaims that message, he then begins to go, and he calls, according to Mark, he walked along the Sea of Galilee, and he calls his first disciples, Peter and Andrew, James and John. Right there, right after he proclaims that. So a little later in that circle of intimacy that he's, that he's making the, the people that belong on the inside, the one who have the kingdom right in front of them, it says that Jesus was once asked 
by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God was coming, and he answered, the kingdom of God is not coming with things that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is. In fact, the kingdom of God is among you. It's in you. It's within us. He doesn't have to speak the parables to them because they are not outside. He speaks the parables for those who are on the outside of the kingdom. The inside is this little circle of intimacy. So I can tell you right off the bat, the kingdom then is who? Jesus. It's not a what. It's not an era. Well, it was an era. But as soon as he showed up, the air is here. His presence. He carries the kingdom in his presence. He calls people around to get them to uh, make a faith decision as to whether or not he really is who he is. And once that happens, he now has created the heavenly kingdom right here. The inside. Jesus said, I don't have to speak in parables with you guys. You're on the inside. But with those on the outside... It hit me that the parable is his outside voice. Did you ever hear your elementary school teacher tell you to be quiet? Use your indoor voices, please. Well, the parables is Jesus' outdoor voice. It's his outside voice. And for those of us in the circle, he uses his inside voice. Because it's really important. It's really important, at least with this first one. He says, to you it's been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. Okay? First, the mysteries are given to them how? Well, in a way, since they're in that circle, if there is any mystery to it, all they have to do is what? Ask him. Which is what they're doing now, by the way. He's told those parables, and they're all asking him what? What does it mean? Which is real interesting is that the parable is supposed to be a side-by-side -side sample illustration of what the kingdom of heaven it is. It's supposed to be something for those on the outside, but here you have those on the inside who don't understand it. So just when we thought that we could uh, maybe feel a little morally superior to those who are outside of our circle, guess what? The ones in the circle didn't understand it either. He had to use his outdoor voice indoors plenty of times. But in a way, they could just tell him. They could just ask. That's what it means to be uh, in this circle anymore. The kingdom is his presence. So outside, he said, I have a particular way of teaching, an intimate way of reaching. The parables are my outside voice, he tells them. They're not completely about it, but it might mostly be how this, uh, I, I think that these first, and, and we're going to spend some time, excuse me, we're going to spend some time with these first parables. But if nothing else, I don't think that, they, that they're completely about evangelism, but certainly they, they, they have, uh, uh, I, I guess, a majority of interpretation that this is how that inside is supposed to reach the outside. He's giving them an example. Here's how I want you to treat them. Here's how I want you to deal with them. Here's how I want you to teach them. This is the way that you reach the outsiders. 
And this one, this one seems particularly important, this first one that he says, because he says this. He says, do you not understand this parable? So we assume that he's asking, we know that he's asking about the first one, the parable of the sower, because he will explain it to him. But he says, do you not understand this parable? Then how will you understand all of them? Uh-oh. If they don't understand the first one, will they understand any of them? No understanding of the first one. No understanding of any of them. So this one's pretty important, isn't it? You won't get any from any of them. So real quick, and like I said, we'll come back and we'll look at it too. Alright? We'll look at it too. But real quick, here's the parable of the sower. Listen, he says. A sower went out to what? A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell on the path, and the birds came and ate it up. What's the goal of the sower? What does he do? He sows. Right? The, don't, don't introduce words that aren't there, because it's a parable, isn't it? And you have to remember, too, that um, I've, been, I've been reading so many books on the parables, and, and, and uh, some, some Jewish, some Christian uh, and, and, and so provocative. And one of the things is, is that are you willing, if you, you know, are you willing to be able to, I guess, approach it with some humility that try to listen the way that the people heard it? In other words, don't imagine at, at, at this particular time that we're on the inside. Try to imagine you're on the outside and how this sounds. And I didn't mean to pick on whoever did it, but we do that, don't we? We introduce another word. This is supposed to be a simple teaching. And he says, so, period. Okay? That's it. But we change it to plant. And actually, in the process of sowing, there's a lot that isn't planted, is it? 75% of the seed here in this parable doesn't get what? Doesn't get planted. So what's the sower trying to do? He's just trying to sow. And as he sows, some feed seed fell where? Is the seed meant for the path? Did he do it on purpose? Not that he was a good sower, he didn't mean to. Why? Does anything grow on the path? No. It's wasted. It's wasted seed. Nothing happens to it, right? So he doesn't want it to be on the path. Next he says, other seed fell on where? On the rocky ground where it did not have much what? Much soil. And it sprang up quickly since it had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it what? Withered away. Is that seed as wasted as the other seed? Sure. Had a little bit of life in it. But there was no what? No roots. It didn't take. Rocks. Rocky soil. Today in Galilee, when you drive, when you're on your tour bus and you're on that highway driving around the Sea of Galilee, and you look at these, these hills where these, these farms actually stood, you see rows and rows and rows of these beautiful rock walls of Jerusalem stone, that white, gleaming Jerusalem stone. Walls that are all about this high. And the reason being is because that ground is so rocky 
that when you started a farm, it might take you up to a year to clear it out of all the rocks. There's a proverb that said that during creation, when certain angels were given responsibilities, he said to the angel that was responsible for giving rocks, he said, I want you to take these 12 rocks and I want you to put one of them in the Holy Land, spread the rest around the world. The angel got it wrong and put 11 in the Holy Land and only one throughout the rest of the world. And even after you till it, maybe even after your first crop, you end up still coming up with rocks. So what they did was they pulled the rocks out is they just made little walls to go around their fields. They're still there. If you're looking to plant, if you're looking to put your seed where it's supposed to go, do you put it on rocks? No. But in Israel, you may not be able to help it. You may not be able to help it. Other seed fell among where? Thorns. Okay. It's possible that you could, that the soil there, in fact, the soil's good, the weeds are growing in it, right? The thorns are growing in it, but do you want your seed to go there? No, because what happens? It gets choked out. Too much competition. It gets choked out. And then, of course, what are we shooting for here? What's the parable shooting for? Other seed fell into good soil. Is that what the sower was hoping for the entire time? Is that what the sower was aiming for the entire time? Good soil. And it brought forth grain growing up and increasing and yielding 30 and 60 and 100 fold. And he said, let anyone with ears, what? And who are the ears that are listening? Are we listening to his outdoor voice? Or are we listening to his indoor voice? This is for the outdoor voice. This is for the people. The people in the crowds. The ones that are on the outside. Guess what? When he was done right there, they went home. That was it. The success of a crop then relies on what? The good soil. Nothing else. It's simple yet profound. It's fundamental if you know anything about agriculture. I know nothing. I have a black thumb of death. My wife has a green thumb. My grandmother had a green thumb. My thumb is, is plague. I know nothing, but I do know this. Without good soil, nothing will what? Grow. Nothing will grow. Something every one of those outsiders would understand that day. It hit them. They all knew. Then they all go away. See, a key again to hearing Jesus' outside voice is try to put yourself in position with outside ears. See, we've all read the explanation that he's about to give to the indoor people, right? We've all read the explanation he's about to give to his followers. And it's hard for us to listen to the parable with outdoor ears because we've already got the inside treatment. But what a blessing it would be to hear his outdoor voice. What did it sound like? His intended audience 2,000 years ago, what did they take home that day? When they heard that, well, for one, he was there. You think any of the important traveling, wandering rabbis and preachers and teachers would leave Jerusalem, 
the hustling, bustling theological center in the seminary to come all the way out to Galilee to preach a sermon? No. He was there. One of the things that attracted people to Jesus was that he happened to come to Galilee. I love Hillel. I love Shammai. But they're not going to be caught dead in Galilee. Otherwise, they have to make a three-day trip to Jerusalem to hear theology, to do what we're doing right now. They've got to make a three-day journey to Jerusalem. And guess what? Most of them can't afford it. As a matter of fact, most of them can't even afford to go to the feast three times a year that they're required to, which is why they get marginalized and continue to be marginalized, and why you have religious, self-righteous religious leaders who think that they're lost because they're ignorant. seems concerned about their everyday lives. He knows what they're going through. You ever, you ever just met somebody and all of a sudden you hit a subject that you both know something about? And it happens, right? When you have something in common with somebody, it clicks, doesn't it? You immediately have a point of reference. You immediately have, immediately have an empathetic ear. the fellow Galilean, it seems. He seems to understand the difficulty of what it means to be a sustenance farmer. How refreshing might that be to you that day? One thing that we may not get is that that's all they got that day. And the reason that, that all they got that day was he decided that's all they needed. He just needed someone to know. He needed to know that someone was thinking about them. That someone knew what they were going through. Imagine that farmer that goes home that day and says, Sweetie, you never guess what happened. I, I heard a preacher. He was preaching from a boat. And I just stood on the shore and listened. There was something. Even if he can't put his finger on quite what it was, it was something. They don't get an explanation. All they get is the parable. All they get is his outside voice. So what happens inside? The followers hear the outside. But what happens inside? They ask, what does it mean? Jesus said, if you don't understand this one, you're not going to understand any of them, so put on your seatbelts, okay? So he says, the sower sows what? The first explanation. He says it's not farm seed. The, the seed is the what? The word. What's the word off the bat? What is the word? What do you think? In the beginning was the word. And the word was God. And the word was with God. And the word became flesh and walked among us. The word is the gospel. The word is the proclamation. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is your God. The Lord is one. That's the word. The word is the gospel. It's the good news. Words, though, go out like what? They go out like seeds. So the hearers of the word are the people. The insiders or who? The outsiders. 
This is how you preach. This is how you spread the gospel. Is that it's done the same way that a farmer looks to plant in his field. He looks to sow. He looks to harvest. He looks to do all of these things. It's the same thing, except you guys won't do it with seeds. You'll do it with what? You'll do it with the Word. Does it include words? Sure. Sure. But how? What voice? What voice do you think Jesus wants his followers to use when they begin to preach the Word to the outsiders? The outside voice? Or the inside ones? Outside. Right? Because that's still their ears, isn't it right? Jesus spoke to them in his what? In his outside voice. Does he expect them who are followers and committed followers of him to do it any differently? try to use the inside voice on outsiders. Are they ready? What might not be prepared if you're just going to throw seeds out like a careless sower? If I'm just going to use inside explanations for outside people, what's going to happen to them? These are the ones on the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. Are they ready to hear it? No. Why is Satan able to come in and snatch it? They don't know what to do with it. They are not prepared. Their heart is not prepared. They've had nobody prepare their what? To prepare their soil. The soil is not prepared on the hard path. The seed's not supposed to be put on the hard path. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. When they hear the word, they immediately receive it with joy. At least they heard it, right? They think that they've heard it, they receive it with joy, but they don't have any what? They've got no root and endure only for a while. But when trouble or persecution arises on account of the word, they immediately fall away. What happens when we tell people that if you just uh, right now begin to follow Jesus, every one of your problems will be taken care of? Are there some Christians that tell people that? I told you before, my life didn't become complicated until after I came to Jesus. Before I came to Jesus, my life was simple. I lived for me, by me, everything, me, me, me. That's a simple life, and it's uncomplicated. I faced no kind of, of, of persecution, no kind of trial. I faced nothing. I came to Jesus, and it completely blew up in my when you made me get in that tank? You told me everything was going to be just peachy. They have no roots. And the ones swung among the thorns are the ones who hear the word and the cares of the world and the lure of what? And the desire for other things come in and choke the word and yield what? Wealth, desire for other things. What, are, what, are, what is wealth? And, and, and again, the problem isn't wealth. Is that remember we spent a long time in Ecclesiastes 
Solomon wanted to make clear the problem isn't wealth, it's what we do with it, right? It's, it's, the, it's the place that it has in our heart. It's the oppression that wealthy people seem to do to poor people. That's the problem, right? And by the way, he's speaking to farmers. He's not telling them that they can't make a living. Right? He's telling fishermen, it's okay to have a job. It's okay to make money. I want you to. But these worries, wealth, if you're being oppressed by wealthy people, all this, they, those things come in and choke the word. What are those all part of? Those are all part of a human sinful nature that everybody has. I come to Christ. He gives me his righteousness and atonement with God. I still fight this sinful nature every day. By the way, what is the soil supposed to do for me? We're supposed to do it together. In other words, a sinner struggling with his sinful nature, the only thing that the, that the farm has for him is each other. Good soil. If he doesn't remain in the good soil, then the benefits of the kingdom can't be his. It chokes the word, and he yields what? And he yields nothing. What would help? What would help somebody who has a problem with greed? What would help somebody that has a problem with the powers of the world? How about a fellowship? A fellowship in a body that gives you an opportunity to curb your greed. Every Sabbath. Every offering. See, but if I can't make the soil new, uh, nutritious enough for them to be able to struggle with that, to be able to be in that, in that good soil, they never can grow. All I do is just tell them, hey, man, just quit being greedy. Give everything to the church. Is that very nutritious to a young seed? Will it be to sprout and grow? The fellowship needs to be something. The soil needs to be what? The soil needs to be right. And these are the ones sown on the good soil. They hear the word. They accept it and they what? And they bear fruit. 30, 60, 100 fold. Good soil. Finally, the solution to it all is this good soil that he's been looking for. If this is about evangelism, proclaiming, making disciples, then the one thing we're called to do, the only thing that a farmer can do besides sow, the only thing he can do that he's in charge of is the soil. Right? That's all he can do. By the way, in a parable that's coming up, that farmer tends the soil. He goes to bed when the growth happens. He wakes up and the growth happens, and he knows not how. We all think that we're in charge of growth. We all think that we're in charge of conversions. We all think that we're in charge of converting people, taking somebody uh, through a Bible study and getting them all the way up there. No, what we're in charge of is the soil. What we're in charge of is the environment in which a faith decision can be made. And by the way, then when we wake up in the morning and we see what God has done, we don't know how it happened. So the soil, for those of us on the inside, is the kingdom. 
It's his presence. Jesus used his outside voice because he went to them outside. See, if his presence is the kingdom and his presence is now in us, then what do we do in order to use our outside voice? The kingdom isn't here to bring people in. We take the kingdom out there. We go to them. We stay with them. We go outside. And we only use our outside voices. Jesus said, if you understand this, you'll understand them all. You kind of get what he's saying right now? said these poor outsiders couldn't even afford a three-day trip to Jerusalem to hear somebody talk about the Messiah. So the Messiah came to them. The insider did everything he could to obliterate the obstacles between the inside and the outside. He does everything to knock them down. He removes them. Geography, culture, economy, Sinner, saint, righteous, unrighteous, Samaritan, Judean. He knocks them all down. Understand this, he said, and you'll understand lives. And you'll understand them all. See, we take the awesome honor of being privileged and blessed to be in this circle, to be inside. But we end up just throwing words. We end up actually taking the explanation that he gave us and try to throw it at the people who are outside. We try to give them the explanation. We try to give them words that only you and I understand. Why? Because we've been walking with the king. We've been talking with the king for 30 years, for 40 years, for three days. We've got information. But are they ready to hear it? Is the soil good? That's why we shouldn't be using our inside uh, voices, our inside information, and throwing it at people. They get upset. They don't respond. And then we blame them. If we're the only organization that looks at the dark and curses it for being dark. I've heard it. I've heard it here. You know, evangelism does the work because the world is just too secular. This nation's too secular. Everybody's just too secular. It's like, it's like yelling at the night for being night. Curse the dark for being dark. Curse the rocks for being rocks. Curse the path for being a path. Curse the birds for being birds. Curse the thorns for being thorns. We get the explanation, but we don't realize we aren't in a superior moral position. Remember, the ones that got the explanation, they didn't understand the parable either. Actually, to me, the, the, the one group in this story that is to be admired and envied is the people that only got the parable and got to go home. The parables, the explanations, the disciples, the narratives should just disabuse us of that. None of them understand. They don't get it at all. So the soil, that's where I want to leave this at. And again, we'll, we'll pick it up a little bit. We'll talk a little bit more about this 
particular parable and evangelism and witness and reaching out. The soil, the nurture, the care, the nutrients, the location, the condition, that's all up to the farmer. That's all up to the sower. What the followers are to tend. It's his presence, though. His presence. Is it, and by the way, is it guaranteed? If you have perfect soil, is it going to grow? Is it absolutely, positively going to yield a harvest? No, it's not guaranteed. But he says, just tend the soil. Just speak to people in your outside voice. Just take my presence to them. And then let me do the rest. Go home and go to bed. We ask ourselves this. Just want to ask you, and uh, I'll wrap it up here. Think about your outsiders that you've run up against this week. Think about the outsiders in your life that you encounter every day, and ask yourself one question: How's my outdoor voice? What's my outside voice sound like? When they leave their encounter with me, like those on the shore of Galilee that day. What do they feel when they get home? Did they hear your affirmation and concern that at least you were aware that they were there and that they were living and that they were struggling and rejoicing and grieving as we all do? That at least they knew there was one person on the planet today that was concerned for, with them for just 30 seconds. Did you send them home with a bit more grace? Did they leave you lacking any grace? That's what we have to ask ourselves. Or did we distance ourselves? Put ourselves and lock ourselves inside and just lock inside and throw our inside voices out to them, just words, if you will. Have we become satisfied with just knowing something that they don't know? Amy Jo Levine in her book, Jesus Short Stories, says this. She says, the danger that we all have as believers for a while is that we begin to domesticate the parable. We begin to try to smooth them out, making them palatable for us, taking the least resistance of expectations, turn them all into children's stories. She says, what makes the parables mysterious but difficult is that they challenge us to look into the hidden aspects of our own values and our own lives. They bring to the surface unasked questions. They reveal the answers we've always known but refuse to acknowledge. Our reaction to them should be one of resistance rather than acceptance. For our own comfort, we may want to foreclose the meaning rather than allow the parable to open up into multiple interpretations. We're probably more comfortable proclaiming a creed than prompting a conversation or pursuing a call. Wow. It certainly is more comfortable to just proclaim a creed, to just throw our inside voices out there, wall ourselves off. But one thing to know, that in that soil, we're the soil. We have the seed planted in us. Has it grown into what it's supposed to grow into? When we reach people with the outside, do they see the fruit? Or do they see the word? Love, joy, peace, 
patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, self-control. How's our outcome? Figs from thistles. Figs from thistles. Like I said, we'll talk more about the outside voice and the inside voice in evangelism. But for today, have you heard his outside voice? Were we with him on the Sea of Galilee? Or were we with him in that little group? Which one were we today? If we were inside, and we see ourselves as only being inside, then just consider our scripture reading this morning. We have an altar for those who officiate and think have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also suffered outside the city gate in order to sanctify the people by his own blood. Let us then go to him where? Outside the camp and bear the abuse he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we're looking for the city that is to come. Through him then let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of the lips that confess his name. There's no substitute or shortcut to this. We'll talk about evangelism. But I will tell you right now, the outside voice says there is no substitute, there's no program, there's no shortcutting this. We have to tend the soil, and we have to do it with our presence. Just as his presence is present in us, we need to take that presence to other people. We need to take it where? Outside. He came outside for us, Hebrews tells us. When we go outside for him welcome to hearing his outside voice.